the town of Northampton, about 100 kilometers north of London, was the site of a famous gathering of pastors in the 1780s. Uh, Gatherings of that sort were not rare. These were ministers not affiliated with the Church of England. They would gather for prayer, for encouragement. Uh, This particular gathering had the normal sort of business as they talked about church planting efforts and the relief of the poor. But as they would so often do at this gathering, they allowed somebody to propose a topic for discussion. The chair of the meeting was the eminent pastor, famous author John Ryland. He was well-respected and dignified. On this particular day, he called on his colleagues to propose a topic. Nobody initially said anything. And finally, a young man. Too young, perhaps, to be the one to propose the topic, spoke up. His name was William Carey. He rose and asked them to discuss the duty of Christians to attempt the spread of the gospel among heathen nations. Those who were there described the moderator as genuinely taken aback, surprised astonished at such a strange suggestion. Eventually, with a loud voice, he rebuked the young Carey and said, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. Apparently, in addition to that, he called Carey a miserable enthusiast, which I guess was a great put down in that day. Ryland's sentiment was quite normal in England at the time. I think it's fair to say through much of church history, that has been the idea, that it's enough for the believer to focus on what is right around them, their life, their work, their church, their immediate surroundings. For what is beyond, we we trust the sovereignty of God, but it's not our affair. It's not our concern. It is not our duty. The meeting is famous, of course, because Carey did not sit down. I mean, literally, he did. But figuratively, he held on to his idea. Soon thereafter, he wrote and published his book. Get this title. Titles have changed. Title of his book, An Enquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. Bestseller in the day. And it would be just a couple of years later, he would preach what is called the deathless sermon because of the enduring impact it had on the hearers. In it, he told them that owning the missionary call of God was for all Christians and should lead us, in his words, to expect great things and attempt great things. He would soon after board a ship to India where he would spend the balance of his days more than 40 years. For those things and for the effect he had on future generations, he is known as the father of modern missions. But I want us to return to the essence of the man's argument. He used the word obligation in the title of his book, a a duty You know, when when someone wants to tell you that that something is your obligation, 
your, your duty, you have to sit up and pay attention because they're trying to put a must on some action. He's not saying that we might do this or we could do this, but we have to do this. His claim is that it's not enough for you and I to live our lives in a Christian bubble. With our circle of friends, our comfortable routines, we can't be satisfied with just meeting minimum religious expectations. I'll, I'll show up once a week and I'll just check off that duty. I'm all set. I'm done. It's not even enough just to be an active part of our church and for our church to try year on year to improve our overall quality a bit. No, on top of all that, William Carey claims that we have a greater duty, a greater purpose, and a greater calling. Was he right? What do you think? One of my favorite quotes is from Mark Twain. You've probably heard me say it before. Two most important days in a man's life, the day he's born and the day he figures out why. Now, I have no idea why an atheist like Mark Twain would presume a grand why upon the universe. That doesn't make any sense from his worldview. Makes a whole lot of sense from ours, doesn't it? The Christian discovers that there is a why. When through Christ we are reconciled to God, we find there's an intent, there's a a purpose for which he made us. We're beginning 2024 with a short series on the church Jesus wants. Trying to reset our vision for what he wants us to do and to be. We we said first that Jesus wants a church founded on the truth. A true confession of who he was as the Christ, the son of the living God. And then we said last week that he wants a church that reflects his holy love. That we will love the lost sinner and the straying saint enough to tell them the truth about their sin. And love a watching world enough to clarify the gospel. In our third message today, we're going to consider that Jesus wants a church on a mission to the world. So if you're taking notes this morning, I encourage you to do that. The main idea of our message will also set up our outline. Jesus the King sends his disciples on a mission to the world, trusting in his presence. Jesus, the king, sends his disciples on a mission to the world, trusting in his presence. And we'll think about that in three points. Number one, Jesus, the king. Jesus, the king. Number two, mission to the world, mission to the world. And then third and finally, trusting his presence, trusting his presence. It's my prayer that we as a church would take this mission as our mission. So let's dive in first. Jesus the King, we are uh, in Matthew 28. If you want to turn in your copy of God's Word or in the Pew Bible, it's page 784. Grab that Pew Bible in front of you. It'll help you to follow along with the text as we walk through it. Matthew 28, 16 through 20, page 784. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, 
to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We'll stop there. When last, the, when last the disciples were together, they were running for their lives as Jesus was arrested. They, they would have watched the events of the crucifixion from a distance, at least some of them, if they weren't in hiding. They would have heard about it. Grief, darkness, despair would have been theirs. And the fact that there are only 11 mentioned here reminds us of Judas' betrayal doesn't it? So, so a cloud hangs over this reunion. Uh, this is the second post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to his disciples in Matthew's gospel. So the two Marys had encountered the risen Jesus as they were returning from the empty tomb. Uh, he met them, as you can see there up in verse 9 and 10, sent them as messengers to the other disciples, telling them to meet him in Galilee. And there's a time lapse here, maybe a couple of weeks, allowing for travel and synchronizing other gospel accounts. It's so interesting that Jesus tells them to go back to Galilee for for this meeting. That's where it all started for them. It's where they first were called to follow him, where, where he told them that he would make them fishers of men. Also interesting that he wants to meet them on a mountain. Maybe he wants to remind them of the Sermon on the Mount where he first taught them what it meant to be a disciple. Verse 17 here recounts the reunion. Remember that that last glimpse of him was was dying of asphyxiation and loss of blood on a Roman cross. We read here that when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. That's a jarring and surprising phrase there, isn't it? You know, if you're a religious skeptic who's here this morning, it's worth noting a couple things here. One is that these first followers of Jesus were not dumb. They weren't gullible. They knew, as the old saying goes, that dead men tell no tales. Dead people stay dead. It's often the case with the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus that the the people at first don't know what to do with them. There's nothing in their experience that prepares them for it. The other thing I want you to note is that Christianity does what no other religion does, to my knowledge. And that is go out of its way to to point out, to highlight, to underline, even to celebrate in a weird sort of way, the, the frailty and fragility of its first leaders. These are fallible men. The apostles struggle to believe. One of the things about the truth is that it doesn't need any propaganda. It doesn't need any spin. You don't have to dress it up. Matthew records this because he was there and he knows it was true. They worshipped him. Some doubted. Now, to dig into the doubt for a moment, the the, the word distazo here in Greek, it means something more like hesitated or wavered. It's another one of these themes that stretches throughout all of the Gospel of Matthew. He's been highlighting the little faith or wavering faith of the disciples. 
Just a few examples. In, in chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount, he taught them not to be anxious about food or clothing. And then he asked them, why do you worry, oh, you of little faith? Chapter 8, when they're caught in a storm on the lake, remember he's sleeping on a cushion and they, they think that they're about to die. When he awakens, he asks them, why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? Chapter 14, remember Jesus walking on the water to the disciples in a boat and, and uh, Peter wants to get out of the boat and Jesus invites him and he's walking on the water with Jesus until he sees the wind and the waves and then he begins to sink. Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And then in chapter 17, as Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, there, there's a man whose son has seizures and the, the, the disciples couldn't heal him. Jesus says it's because of your little faith. What's interesting in all these examples is that while having little faith is not a thing to be celebrated, I mean, often Jesus is rebuking. At the same time, it's not disqualifying. Another way to say it is that little faith or hesitating faith is enough faith as long as it's faith in Jesus. These men were not faith superheroes. That we're not indomitable men of unwavering conviction. But what little faith they had, they put in the right place. They doubt, but they still showed up. Friends, don't ever underestimate the power of showing up. So what about you, friends? What do you do with your doubts? Take a lesson from these men and take them straight to the Lord. Stop focusing on the amount of your faith and start focusing on the object of your faith. That's just what Jesus wants them to do. He speaks right to them and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, we have to notice a transformation here. The disciples knew him in the state of his humility, a penniless preacher and healer, he was, he was harassed. He was opposed by many. Ultimately, he was captured and killed. So, so they knew him as the, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and, and one who was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. But, but in his resurrection from death, he's now displaying something else, isn't he? His authority over life and death and over all things in heaven and on earth that the Father was pleased to give him. To say it simply, Jesus is the king. Friends, most of our troubles in life come from this one failure, the failure to acknowledge Jesus as the king, to see him as the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth and so certainly authority over our little lives. Covers every area of life. It seems so many are confused about what it means that Jesus has all authority. I'm a Christian, but, but I, don't, I don't really go to church on Sunday. What? Well, he, he says you should. I'm a Christian, but I, I've got my own view of, of sexual ethics. That doesn't really follow, does it? I'm a Christian, but I do what I want with my money. Well, 
when we think in those sorts of ways, we're engaging in a sort of selective amnesia. You didn't make yourself. You certainly didn't redeem yourself. When we think that way, we're losing sight of the most important fact in the universe, that Jesus is the king with all authority. So so let me ask you, do you live like that is true, that Jesus is the king? Now that question makes all the difference for what follows. Let's consider secondly this mission to the world and look at verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. These two verses are what is known as the Great Commission, and that's the right word for what's happening. Uh, Jesus is sending his disciples on a mission. That's what a commission is. These familiar words are remarkably brief, clear, He covers the what, the where, and the how. I want to double-click on each of those. First, the what. The mission is to make disciples. Many have observed that grammatically, in, in Greek, make disciples is the main verb. That's one word in Greek. The surrounding verbs are all participles. Sorry for the grammar lesson, but the ing verb, the participle, is a helping verb. So going, baptizing, teaching... You can't see it with the go in most English translations because they, they rightly want to preserve the, that it's part of the command to go and make disciples. But the key is to realize that it's, it's not go and get people to make decisions for Jesus. We're not counting statistics. We're not satisfying ourselves with hands raised or aisles walked or, or intellectual agreement. A disciple is a learner or a follower. In the first century, the the word often literally meant to to walk around following a rabbi, to listen to what he taught, and and copy his manner of life. Here, Jesus is is extending the idea to to those who, who weren't able to do that with him specifically, like these first followers were, but to those who would, by faith and not by sight, be his disciples, be his learners and followers. Here, they're commanded to tell other people about him and so introduce them to who he is, to what he teaches. The goal here is to persuade others to follow him like you have. Now, think about your own story for a moment, your own testimony. Becoming a disciple of Jesus. How many people helped you get to the point where you were ready to do that? I would bet it was a lot. I mean, some of them may have spoken to you individually, maybe a family member or a friend. Others maybe taught you in a more formal setting, could be a Sunday school teacher or or someone to preach to you. Still others did things that you you saw, you you watched them. was listening to a, a friend's testimony one time. His name was Talkai, and uh, he, he was talking about this guy, John, who had explained to him a little bit about Jesus, to, told him something about the gospel. 
Uh, but he, was, he wasn't really interested at the moment. The next day, he saw John out on campus picking up some trash that wasn't his and putting it in the bin. And, and he said that as he stood there and watched John do this, he, he started thinking about what John had told him the, the day before. It ended up starting him on the journey to faith. I, I love that sort of a testimony where, where word and deed combine. Friends, we, we, we print testimonies here as people join the church. I want you to read them because we want to celebrate the stories of how the Lord has worked through, through many circumstances and many people to bring us to faith. So make disciples. That's the what of the mission. Secondly, where? We see that here in the phrase, of all nations. The Greek is penta ta ethne. Ethne is where we get the word ethnic in English. It, it doesn't refer to modern nation states, political entities. It, it's rather smaller ethnicities, tribes, families. Uh, we should connect it in our minds all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 12 where we read that the promise was made to Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. So the mission is not just to persuade a few people in a few places to be disciples, but to keep working until people in every place and among every people are following Jesus. It's therefore a global mission. Think about the fact that for these first disciples, living in an age where information technology was, was not a thing, right? I mean, their ability to know what was happening uh, farther afield, it just came from letters or from word of mouth. But, but that didn't stop them from kind of organically leaning into places where the church was not planted, I love the story of the Philippian church. You know, Paul shows up, he preaches the gospel, a few people believe, they form a church, and then almost immediately, you know, Paul has to move on to someplace else, they start sending him money. There's no fundraising campaign whatsoever. It's like, we've got a church here now, but, but Paul's heading down the Greek peninsula to Thessalonica, and other places, there's no church there. Well, he needs money to go do that. Let's send him some money. These guys are so crazy. Even later on, Paul, Paul says in 2 Corinthians that you, you, they begged. <laughs> they begged to participate in the work of seeing churches planted, strengthened. Took it as a part of their mission. I think this is a, a great inherent challenge for us as a church. I mean, we're surrounded by some of the neediest places for gospel outreach on planet Earth. This church has a history of, of supporting missions and missionaries. So this is in our DNA. But there is so much more to be done, friends. The, the, the past that we look back on with great encouragement doesn't necessarily do anything for us in the future. We as a body are going to have to lean into the needs that are around us. More education is needed about the state of church planting in Malaysia and in Myanmar. More fervent prayer for the challenges of many parts of Indonesia, Vietnam. I think our great danger has to be 
in becoming comfortable here. It's quite easy to be a, a Christian in Singapore. I'm thankful for favorable laws and security and wealth. Thankful for a, a comfortable building to sit in here. But we're stewards of those blessings. Friends, our primary geographic concern should not be where to take our next vacation. The thing that moves our hearts, that we spend time and energy thinking about and praying for, should be where does the church need to be planted? What could we do about it? So there's a what, make disciples. There's a where of all nations. There's also a how. How do we make disciples of all nations? Well, we've already said that telling people about Jesus is inherent in persuading them to be his disciples. So we're going to have to tell people who he is and what he's done. We're going to have to tell them the good news about Jesus Christ, that he's the eternal Son of God, that he's one with the Father and the Spirit, that in the fullness of time he became incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary and is uniquely the God-man, that, that he, he lived a life of perfect righteousness, and that he died on a Roman cross and took upon him the wrath of God against sin, your sin and my sin, that on the third day he rose again from the grave and then ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, that he will come again to judge the living and the dead, and that by believing in him, the worst of sinners can be saved, can be pardoned of all that sin and become a child of God. Proclaiming that good news is the first step to making someone a disciple. It might be the person right next to you. We're to look first right around us, our, our family. Our neighborhood, that, that next door neighbor, the, the, the favorite Hawker Center stall that you go to, the person who sits next to you at work, those who are in your NS batch, starts right around us. Don't make this rhetorical, make this practical. Who do you aim to talk to this next week? Write it down. Share it with someone for accountability. Ask them simply, do you know about Jesus Christ? What do you think about Jesus Christ? The mission begins there, but it doesn't end there. We move outward because the all nations pushes us that direction. And, and here we need help to think and to plan. This is where the church comes in. Somebody's organizing block visits, so we join in that. Another person has an idea for using badminton as an outreach, so we join that. There are certain sectors of Singapore that, that need gospel outreach. We're interested. We pray. We join. But then we have to think even further, beyond our borders. Places where someone's going to have to physically move. Maybe using their, their job, their, their work, 
to live somewhere more needy for the gospel. Or perhaps they're going to be sent there full time as a missionary, share the gospel and plant churches. This is what we call a missionary, a a person who's sent to an unreached people or place for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel and planting churches. We pool our money together and, and we join other churches to send people to go. I prayed before I started for David and Gladys Chang in Bangkok. There there are many more that we support. Make it your goal to to know them, to pray for them, to send them messages of encouragement. But it doesn't stop there. Because we need a new generation of people who will go. Many of us need to support them and pray for them. So going and proclaiming, we we can pair together in this how of making disciples. But then there are two more pieces to the puzzle. To going and proclaiming, we add baptizing. The word in Greek, it's not a religious word. It simply means to immerse something in water. You baptize your clothes for washing in the the minds of of an ancient Greek. But But John the Baptist and even other Jewish religious leaders had popularized baptism as a symbol of being washed clean from sin and being renewed with a heart of repentance towards God, trust in God. And so Jesus adopts it here as the sign that a person has become a disciple. It's an initial act of faith and obedience. And notice that this baptism is in the one name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The word Trinity is not found in the Bible, but its teaching is abundantly clear. There's only one God. The word name here is singular. But we can rightly speak of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, for the the, the three are both united and distinct. So the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. This three-in-oneness of God, it may be beyond our comprehension, but we should not be surprised, I don't think, that the nature of God would be so. And yet faith in God's nature as triune is what a person is being baptized into. It's what they must believe for the baptism to be real. And that's why we And other gospel-preaching churches always baptize in the triune name. At a small church about 12 hours from now in central Ohio, my oldest daughter will be baptized. Uh, Won't be there, obviously. Uh, I don't know the pastor who will do it, but I know what he will do. He will ask her if she believes that Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God. And then he will baptize her in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. She'll be buried with Jesus in baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave to walk in newness of life. If you're here and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus and you haven't been baptized, you should be. Grab one of the pastors at the door afterwards. Contact us later. Just just. Let us know that you want to follow the Lord Jesus by being baptized. It's the initial sign that a person is indeed a disciple. 
They get baptized in the name of the triune God. One more thing we should say as we consider the meaning of this sign is that in the Old and New Testaments, there is always a sign of God's covenant with his people. It's circumcision in the Old Testament, baptism in the New. And in each case, the sign of the covenant includes you as a member of the covenant community. You don't take the sign of the covenant and then go be a a lone ranger out there somewhere. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 says we're baptized by one spirit into one body. And then he speaks of us as one body in many parts in the church. That's why it makes the most sense of the Lord's teaching on baptism for it to happen in the local church. There are exceptions out on the mission field. I think it's unfortunate in our day that this initial covenant sign, baptism, and then the ongoing covenant sign of the Lord's Supper are used by so many groups and organizations independent of any ecclesia, any church. They shouldn't do that. It empties the sign of much of its meaning. So baptism, baptizing is a beginning, but Jesus tells us to build upon it, doesn't he? He says, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Notice the comprehensiveness of the command, everything I've commanded you. Not not just the explicit words of Jesus in the Gospels. It's a small fraction of, of all that Jesus taught to them. The rest of the New Testament the teaching of the apostles, those followers of Jesus, teach it all. Paul told the Ephesian elders he endeavored to teach them the whole counsel of God. And that's so much of our labor here. We try to pour into the gathering, the corporate gatherings of this church. Every Sunday we want to to preach faithfully from different parts of the Bible, from Exodus to Hebrews to Isaiah to Matthew We want to sing songs filled with biblical truth. We want to pray meaningful prayers. In our equipped classes, we want to pick up a more topical teaching about important things, how to spend our time, our money, how to raise kids, how to do evangelism. And then in community groups, we try to get each other conversing about the scriptures, connecting it to our lives. And that's the goal. Not information transfer, but life change. We're not trying to give you a PhD here. We, we want to teach you to obey all that Jesus has commanded, to observe it in your life. Maturity for us is growing both in knowledge of biblical truth and how we live it out in the power of the Spirit. So have you learned that Jesus came not to be served but to serve? And to give his life a ransom for many? How does that apply to the washing of dishes in your house? It should be just that specific, shouldn't it? Have you learned that the second coming of Christ and the glories of heaven are a place of eternally increasing joy? That's wonderful, but you got to apply that to the putting off of anxiety about the possibilities of retrenchment and your struggles financially. This is the commission. The what, the where, and the how. Let's try to keep it clear in our minds. It encompasses all the outreach that we do locally and then further afield as we try to learn what the needs are and ask what resources we have that can be bent towards those ends. 
It encompasses the building that we do here as we try to take disciples from baptism to maturity, obeying all that he's commanded. But friends, this is our mission. It can't be outsourced to anyone else. He didn't give it to parachurch organizations. Christians are free to form organizations to help and to serve the church. Those organizations work best when they realize they're not the the point. Jesus promised authority, the keys of the kingdom to the church. But then he gave us this commission. And he expects us to do it. Global mission. Make disciples of all nations. Going, baptizing, teaching. It's a high calling. It's one that calls us to focus in the end here in point three on the source of our strength. Number three, trusting his presence. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Just a few weeks ago at Christmas, John helped us think about what it means that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, from Matthew chapter 1. Last week, we we marveled at the promise of Jesus in the context of church discipline, that where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with you. Well, here at the close, we are again promised the presence of Jesus, always. His presence means that we're never alone when we do his work. Have you ever been asked to do something at work and then gotten no support from the supervisor who gave you the task? Jesus never does that. He never calls his disciples to do something and and then doesn't give them all that they need to accomplish it. You and I have no reason to live like orphans, to live like those who are alone. Friends, that's what we're doing when when we don't pray. God doesn't need our prayers. He isn't trying to see if we're going to pass the spiritual exam. We pray because we believe he is with us and he wants to help us. And so we can entrust the things that are on our hearts to him. If you're not a believer, I wonder how you make it through life without prayer, without knowing you're not alone. You didn't make yourself. That's easy enough for you to agree with, I assume. Where are you going to go? Is anyone with you? Well, your creator is there if you will cry out to him. Beloved, this gathering, more than anything else, should be a celebration of the presence of God with his people. Where we gather in his name, there he is with us also. So let's gather in his name, not virtually, not occasionally, not sleepily, not as an interlude in between other pastimes. He's with us as we fulfill his mission. And he's with us always, he says, to the end of the age. That puts a period on things. You know, there's a great weariness in the age we live in because secular culture views history as a a never-ending and ultimately pointless series of events. That's why the news is so tiring 
to so many. It's always more of the same. Economies rise and fall. Nations rise up against nations. They also rise and fall. Our lives can take on a personal weariness when we don't realize where history is heading. We feel like the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he wrote, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. That's the conclusion you're going to come to if there is no end of the age. But Jesus reminds us that this time of walking by faith and not by sight has an end. For the believer, it's not the end of his presence. For he went to prepare a place for us in heaven. Heaven is a place of even greater togetherness with him. For there we will see him face to face. And until that day, he will not leave us alone. The problem with life is that people keep leaving. Parents do. Friends do. Kids do. Church members. Pastors. In one way or another. Those who are by your side are not there anymore. But Jesus, friends, is the one constant. He will not leave you. This is the great strength and encouragement meant to bolster us for the mission. Jesus the King sends his disciples on a mission to the world, trusting in his presence with them. We began by thinking about William Carey. Much could be said about the faith of a man who did a great deal to remind the church of its mission. He described himself in very low terms. He was not a visionary. He called himself a plotter. But he was a man who believed in the mission. He once put his life in this focus. I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. Friends, when you follow the Savior on the mission he's given, you are focusing on the only thing that matters. Jesus wants a church on a mission to the world. Let's pray.